Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hello and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life, the programme that takes wellbeing research off the page and into our lives. I'm Dr Denise Quinlan and today we're talking about what schools can do to support the wellbeing of their students. In particular, what they can do to make it easier for children and young adults to develop secure relationships and develop a secure sense of attachment and belonging in their school. My guest today is Nathan Wallace, long-term child advocate, advocating for the importance of attachment and secure relationships from early childhood onwards. Nathan really encourages school practices that are aligned with and supportive of the developmental stages that children are going through. He's a neuroscience educator, translating and sharing findings from neuroscience with parents, teachers, and those in places like the Ministry of Education and other administrations that have influence. Best of all, he's really clear on what we can do to help our Tawariki and Arangitahi enjoy well-being. Kia ora, Nathan, and welcome to Bringing Wellbeing to Life. Yeah, thank you. Glad to be here. Delighted to have you here. So, Nathan, you've worked for a long time now translating neuroscience and other child development findings into really doable practical strategies that parents and schools can use. Tell us about this mission of yours and what kind of got you fired up on it. Well, I think probably it relates back to my very first experience as a primary school teacher. I went straight from high school, trained as a primary school teacher. One of my first experiences in the classroom was having all these kids from Cambodia that were, um, some of them are seeing their parents killed, so they would sleeping over dead bodies. So my first experience as a teacher was scared kids don't do a lot of learning. You know, I knew nothing about neuroscience or uh, social-emotional well-being or anything, really. Um, you just work out that those kids' minds are not focused on learning, so you need to do things to make them feel safe and make them feel looked after. I needed to act more like a nurturer and a dad, um, and then I could act like a teacher that you couldn't go straight to acting like a teacher. So I just realised the huge significance of social-emotional well-being, um, that we've tended to think that it's your IQ and how intelligent you are, but I, I realised that varies hugely according to how safe you feel and how well looked after you are. So then we went back to university, did more training, and um, you know, to train as a child therapist. So I suppose in some ways that's what got me started. I mean, in lots of ways, I was also the family babysitter, so I remember, you know, being, having the babies rammed at me from the time I was four, saying, oh, Nathan's good with babies, I stopped crying with Nathan. So it's hard to say when it started, really. <laughs> but it sounds like a lifelong interest and commitment to what works, what works yeah. to make um, young people feel safe and able to really engage and learn and be happy. Just maximise their potential. I mean, everyone's really special, aren't they? It's not just a sort of a glib thing to say. Everybody is special. There is real specialists in every person, so we should be really aiming to find that. <laughs> Rather than pushing square pegs into round holes everywhere. Yeah, yeah, or just this conformist thing, or just thinking that it's skill-based. So this brings us on to, so what would be your key messages to parents and teachers of preschoolers and new entrants about what they can do? I think the key message would have to be the three R's are the most important. And the three R's are relationship, relationship, and relationship. Um, it's not about so much reading, writing, and arithmetic, and that's sort of something we associate with the frontal cortex, which is around seven. I mean, it's obviously 
soon as the child says a word, they're using their frontal cortex. But that doesn't move into centre stage development until about seven. Anyone that's gone to teacher's college knows about Piaget's stages of cognitive development, and you reach that stage at seven to eight when you really formalise learning. So under that age, what I'd like them to know is it's it's about a million things that develop in the child's brain, but they're all centred on this one-on-one relationship. You know, over and over again, we see in the research, and that's what I'm really strong about, it's like implementing the research, right? And it's kind of indisputed in the research that the number one factor that determines a kid's outcomes from a classroom is the quality of the relationship with the teacher, beyond the parents' qualifications or the relationships with peers or it's that. So I suppose the message I want everyone to understand is the more you can invest in a one-on-one, high-quality relationship, the better all the outcomes will be for the, for the kid for the rest of their life. And that goes for whether you're a parent or a preschool teacher or a new entrant teacher. Yep, yep, it does. It just means fostering that intimacy and that partnership. I mean, it's a difference between having a being, you know, being raised evolutionary-wise. It's a difference between having four aunties or having three aunties. What's the difference that you're getting from that extra relationship? Because aunties are already nurturing. They already look after your needs. They already feed you when you're hungry. So what is it you're getting extra? And it's that intimacy and that partnership that really facilitates all of the um, you know most finely and highly evolved parts of our brain and i was thinking of you earlier i was reading something and there's this lovely heading to a chapter on relationships and it's a quote from a guy called gary smalley and it says life is relationship the rest is just details <laughs> love it that's perfect i thought i thought you'd enjoy that yeah that sums it up wonderfully so so really for parents it's very much around what can they do to to have that one-on-one time and are there any changes that you'd encourage schools to think about enable you know primary schools in particular to support optimal child child development well-being and learning yes there is one that i really try and ram home which it doesn't fit very well with our cultural base i don't know i don't think it's that well received but it's absolutely backed up by the research. If I could change one thing, it would be stop changing the teacher all of the time and get rid of the idea of having a new entrance teacher and then a year one teacher and then a year two teacher. Because I think a lot of children in their primary school experience having had six or seven superficial relationships um, and not one deep, meaningful one. And your brain needs that deep, meaningful one. And I think it's just too flip to say all the teachers should have wonderful, meaningful relationships with all 30 kids when you've got them for 10 months. This is not the reality of how relationships work. You can do that sometimes. If you get a class of 30 kids, there's probably 10 of them that you click with instantly. It doesn't require a lot of skill because your temperament bases match up. But they're the easy ones for you to teach. And then there's probably another 10 that um, doesn't click instantly. When you use your professional skills and your relationship building skills and that whole kitty of skills that you've built up as a teacher, an appearance and an auntie and all of that stuff, and you work a wee bit harder, and it takes longer to build those relationships. But then, then there's another 10 in the class that, you know, your temperament might clash with them. Some of those 10 are going to come from a traumatic background, and they have put on so many layers to protect themselves from it that it's going to take you more than a year to get through that. So I think if we, I just know from a brain point of view that the brain, if we want that frontal cortex to develop, then the first thing that the brain needs is a dyadic relationship. Most of us get it from mum, when we're a newborn, when you said about your close relationship with your aunties, I had grandmothers that were you know, particularly close and not more involved. Um, it doesn't matter the biology or the relation of that person. As long as you have that one-on-one relationship, that intimacy with someone, um, it triggers, gives your brain what it needs and allows you to grow that frontal cortex, which is empathy, mm-hmm. controlling emotion, seeing things from other people's point of view. So I just think that if we used to get more of that, you know, like it used to be that you went to early childhood and you had the same teacher for when you were three and four, you know, two, three and four. 
now they pretend to want to copy, copy the primary schools to lift their status in New Zealand. And so you've got the two-year-old Rome and the three-year-old Rome and the four-year-old Rome. So now they're no longer receiving that dyadic relationship with brain needs of early childhood. They didn't receive it. And then they're going to a primary school where they're going to have a new entrance teacher. And that's going to be a year one and year two. I can just see, I mean, you probably are aware, Denise, and a lot of people are aware of it, but we, and Celia Lashley lost her job, actually, saying we know who the prison population is going to be when you're 25. We can tell you who they are now as three-year-olds. So she didn't get fired because she was wrong. She got fired because you're not allowed to say that when, the minister, when you work for the ministry. She's absolutely right. That really disturbs me that we know who's going to be in prison when they're 25, not with 100% accuracy, with a really high degree of accuracy. We know who that cohort's going to be. And from my perspective around brain development, the single thing that could have saved them was a dyadic relationship. Mm-hmm. That would give their brainstorm what it needs to come, which allows their frontal cortex to develop, which allows controlling emotion, empathy, higher intelligence, focusing attention, all the things that will allow them to be successful and keep them out of jail. But they don't even get to access that part of the brain because no one's giving them a diet. They either come from foster care, and we have an atrocious system of foster care in New Zealand that is, I mean, I'm just going to say it, it's institutional abuse. There is no way that you can go to the foster care system as an infant under three and not be abused. So I think in terms of we've got a system that sends you a relationship where we change multiple times. You don't go straight to a cure. We remove your baby, you don't go straight to the cure and stay there. You go to another cure temporarily in between and might stay there for six months to start forming attachment and then you'll move to the next person. To me, that's institutional abuse. So they've come from that background or they've come from a postnatal depressed mother for whatever reason, that percentage of kids that would not receive a diet um, and now they're going to early childhood centres and not receiving it because they've got the three-year-old room and the four-year-old room and then they go to the primary school. I just wish that they would change that. I think I fluked it. I come from a not very desirable background, but I went to a country school. So you had to get a dietic relationship because it was only the little room and the big room. So, so you were there for that. a while. Yeah, yeah, you're there for all the primary schools. So you had that teacher and that teacher. Even an average teacher fulfills a diet when you have that teacher for three years. They become like an uncle. The relationship or an auntie. The relationship becomes more, I mean, a real uncle or auntie. The relationship becomes more nuanced. It becomes a high-quality relationship because it's got history. It's got shared experience. Whereas it's hard to build that up among you for mm. 10 months. Mm. And presumably in a small community as well, um, there's much, there's a, you're amplifying the shared experience of a, share, of a small community that you know what's been going on for local events, people's families, all that stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yes, so Nathan, how about, um, you know, we know there are systems that do it differently. So for example, Steiner, you have the same teacher for about seven years. Any data on how that works? Yeah, there are aspects of Steiner which excite me, like having the same teacher for seven years. Um, and we've got correlative data that shows that that's really good. You know, we need a mainstream environment where there's a control group that continues to be mainstream, and then the rest of them, the other kids have the same teacher for seven years to really isolate that one factor. In yeah. a Steiner school, that's going on, but there's whole multiple other factors going on too, so you just get correlative outcomes. But, yeah, there are aspects of Steiner that I really, really like. You know, I can't... Um, I don't know it well enough to endorse the whole thing, but I certainly know characters. I'm keeping the same teacher. I absolutely love it. I love how when I've been into Steiner schools, they send you your body from work. That really uh, resonates to someone who understands um, neuroscience as well, that you engage the whole body in the learning process. The sort of kids getting down and making the shape three with their body while they're learning about three. And I just think, oh, that's really clever. It's really mm. helpful. Mm. This is what three feels like at a whole body level. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a whole bringing in so much more of the system, the central nervous system. 
Nice. Um, so, Nathan, you're also really very well known for your work on educating parents and teachers about the teenage brain. Tell us about right, yeah. you know, the key messages that you want to give, to give to parents and teachers about teenagers and their brains. Okay, you get quite different parents coming along with the teenage brain. I always laugh because when they come for the first thousand days, they're all looking bright and full of hope. And when they come along for the teenage brain, there's a few more weary faces. I think you hit that point, and I know I hit it, where, where your teenagers hit that middle of adolescence and you hit that point where you go, oh, no, I think I may have done the whole thing horribly wrong. <laughs> I think I may have um, parented really badly because look what's happened. Yes, I like, oh, bring on the fast food. I've ruined everything else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think the message for parents is to understand that adolescence is a real thing happening inside the brain. It's not just made up. It's not caused by Facebook. It's not caused. You know, it wasn't caused by video games. I mean, my grandmother was convinced that um, adolescence was caused by Elvis' pelvis. You know, every generation tends to blame whatever is the newest technology. But brain-wise, it's to do with the fact that your frontal cortex, brain number four. The, the, the last one to develop, the one that controls your emotions, sees things from other, other people's point of view, um, understands consequences. That brain, for around about three years, somewhere in the middle between 7 and 27, is going to basically shut for renovations, and that's called adolescence. So yes, your teenager is supposed to go backwards in um, empathy. They're supposed to go backwards in controlling their emotions. You know, rates of anxiety and depression and stuff soar during adolescence. Because the part of the brain that controls emotions, that sees things from other people's point of view, that understands consequences, is for 90% of the day going to be shut for renovations. So you will get this flash coming through of your teenager's frontal cortex. They have moments where they're wonderfully articulate. They have moments where they basically are an adult. Becoming an adult and being a teenager, your frontal cortex doesn't have to get better. It has to move from being only online 10% of the time to being online 90% of the time. But in that 10% of the time when it's on, your teenagers, you know, just as good at um, empathy as you are, just as good at understanding the future or understanding consequences, you know, like I say, 10% of the time they are an adult. But 90% of the time it's going to be shut down, shut the renovations. And that's going to force them back down into brain number three, which is their emotional brain. So they become, you know, not only can they not control their emotions because the frontal cortex is shut down, but now it's like the emotions have to turbocharge as well because they're living in that place. So emotions soar. You know, teenagers are not famous for their logic. Anyone that's had a 16-year-old daughter in love can see that that's not, or a son, actually, that that's not, they don't come home and say, oh, I'm in love with him because he's got good money earning potential. Um, he's got a good relationship with his mother, so I think that means he respects women. Um, uh, he's got his past um, partners talk about him as being a really good guy. They don't come a 40-year-old woman on, on um, Tinder and look for that because that's, you know, you've got a frontal cortex and you want those characteristics. Those things matter. But 15-year-olds come home with no logic. It's like, Oh, I love him. You know, um, he, he's a small drug dealer and he's been expelled and he beat up his last girlfriend, but I love him. It's, it's emotion. He's lovely. Yeah. I think it's appearance to understand there's nothing gone wrong with your teenager. Um, they're supposed to be very emotional. They're, um, it's just something that we really need to nurture and support them through. I think when they were two, you had to kind of be their frontal cortex for them. They could do bugger all, but they couldn't calm themselves down. You had to rock them. They, couldn't go to bed by themselves. You had to take them and read them a story. You kind of were their frontal cortex at two in many ways. And then from two to like 15, you've been handing over the roles and responsibilities of the cortex. I think the best advice is just realising that you've got to take back a lot of that responsibility when you're a teenager. I would, I'd really like people not to try and fight their teenager into being well-behaved. I'd like them to understand that stuff and then nurture their teenager into being well-behaved. 
And, and what are some of the strategies that you'd recommend to parents or teachers for um, engaging well with their teenager during that adolescent phase when they're not so logical and maybe a bit more prone to... Absolutely. Ad- My advice would be chill out and shut up um, because that's what most of us don't do. You're not shaping their character and their work values during adolescence. That was done well, well before. You had the first three years to build their brain. You had until 11 to shape their character. And now you've just got to live with them. So stop creating fights where you think you're trying to build character and stuff because that happened beforehand. I would even go so far as to say, actually, just allow them a little bit to be a bit of a sullen, lazy teenager. Um, it doesn't mean they're going to be sullen and lazy for the rest of their life. Just like teenagers don't get out of bed till four, you still don't have any problem going to work when you're an adult. Like, um, yeah, yeah, all of that stuff said beforehand. So I think it maybe, maybe one of the pieces of advice I'd add for, for parents of, of children and teenagers in that phase is go and talk to people whose kids have come out of it and remind yeah. yourself that it ends. Yes, that's right, yeah. And understand that it's mainly about that emotional brain. So if you don't listen to your emotional brain, then you're part of the 90% of parents that teenagers say don't listen to them. And you think you're listening to them because you're listening for some logic, but their world's not logic. Our world's logic. Their world is emotion. So if you don't speak to that emotional brain, then you've ignored your child. And children will do as you do, not as you say. Mm-hmm. So if you're ignoring your kids, expect your kids to ignore you. Um, so, yeah, so speaking to that emotional brain just means speak to their emotion first. You know that example? Of so first people. of all, listen to the emotions and then respond to the emotions yeah. you're hearing. Yeah, I think we do listen to them. We listen to them inside our head as parents, and we, we remember being 16, we remember being heartbroken, but we don't voice it. So the kids don't know we've listened. So I think that's the important. I mean, you don't, I don't mean that you bring out all your own experience of being 16, because then it's like, it's not about you. <laughs> um, but just acknowledge, say, instead of just having it in your head, when the 16-year-old goes, I'm devastated, I don't want to go back to school, I'm devastated because I've broken up with my partner and I'm never going to fall in love with anybody ever again and what's the point of going on because that was my one person I could ever be in love with. I'm just describing myself at 16, right? my mother had to deal with that. <laughs> um, but when you're doing that, that 16, you think the world's over. If you go straight to logic with that child, like my mum, trying to be helpful, said, oh, it's just puppy love, Nathan. You'll be fine in a couple of weeks. Well, that did not make me feel better. That made me just think, this is the most important thing that's ever happened in my life, and my mother's equation to puppies. She's clearly too old to remember what it feels like to fall in love. So I'm saying, do the opposite to that. If she went straight to logic, and like a helpful mum was trying to fix my problem and help me, and she wanted her boy to feel better, so she went to problem solving. Even as husbands, we get in trouble for doing that, right? What we need to do is validate the emotion first. The key word's validation. So the 16-year-old says, oh, I'm never going to fall in love again. You can say something like, oh, honey, I know you felt really strongly about Billy. Um, I know, you know, you felt more strong about him than you have about anyone you've ever gone out with, so you must be really devastated. You're not, it's not agreeing. I'm not agreeing that she's never going to fall in love again. It's validating. And so what happens is the child goes, oh, he's listening to me. He hears me. He hears my experience. If you have a child that thinks they're being listened to, you're 99% way to have a child that can listen to you. Because that's what you're if you're mm-hmm. listeners do, so they will do as you do. And if we think about teenagers and that adolescent period at school, what are some yeah. of the things high schools could do to really yeah. support them through that stage and support healthy yeah. child development? Yeah. I have to say, I think that in New Zealand, that's quite, quite difficult for high schools to do because we have an educational system that's very focused on preparing them for the workforce. 
And so you're more liable to come out of high school with a unit for driving a forklift than you are for having any emotional intelligence. It's not something that's strongly put across in the curriculum because we're so, I think, run by the business round table and stuff and have our high school's all about getting a job, getting credits. So, um, yeah, for teachers then within that system, um, you've got to focus on the pastoral care. Um, which is in the New Zealand culture has sort of been a 10% thing we did on the edge that kind of is annoying and, um, and want to get on with getting ready for their NCEA credits. But what I would say is the more you focus on their pastoral care, the more NCEA credits you can get because it's just how the brain works. So, again, schools, even high schools, fostering that dyadic relationship. If you've come from that background of foster care and then gone to the two-year-old room, the three-year-old room, and then they get other then you know, primary school change your teacher every year, now you're going to get to high school and change your teacher every hour. So the naughty kids, and we already know who they are, because you could just ask the primary school. Um, and the primary school knew who they are, because they could just ask their own child to send it. Back to that senior national principal. We know who they are from when they're three. So um, those kids especially need to have an anchored relationship. What I would do is, I'd do it for all kids, because I think what's good for um, traumatised kids is good for all children. Just in the same way that's what's good for Māori, it's actually good for everybody. It's the same principle. Um, but and actually, you know, the interesting thing, Nathan, is that all of this completely aligns with what is good for well-being. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's just that we tend to not look at the well-being until we've got someone in crisis and they might be suicidal, so now we'll look at well-being. But you're absolutely right. If we were just blanket general policies of well-being, um, then you would have it that you come to the high school and you're anchored into one relationship. Now, it could be that you have the um, same... I mean, you see some high schools doing it, going, oh, okay, now you've always been the year 19, um, but next year you're going to be the year 10 dean, the year after the year 11 dean. Now the dean's becoming that dyadic one-on-one relationship following them through. But if 100 kids come into year 9, that's not much of a one-on-one. Schools that are going a step further go, well, that's not enough. Let's make it a form teacher or a homeroom teacher, and um, you're going to have the same homeroom teacher from when you started until when you finish high school. So you do have one long-term in-depth relationship. But then again, if you're only with the homeroom teacher for 15 minutes a day, um, that's not going to be enough to build a relationship for these really traumatised kids. So mm. the schools are going a step further and going, well, okay, for these kids, as well as making sure that Miss Hudson is their form teacher, we're going to make sure Miss Hudson's also their maths teacher and their geography teacher. So now that kid is spending two hours and form time with Miss Hudson, and we're going to do that again next year. And that child will develop a high-quality relationship one with Miss Hudson, and I think that's what we need to do. That's what's going to save these kids from going to jail. That's really nice because it's a it's a lovely way of having you know that pyramid of care that everybody's yeah. getting um, continuity of care through the high school, but then we can pick to add to make that stronger yeah. for those who most need. And I think another big thing that comes through in the research about how well kids do from secondary school is the. Um, the connection between home and school. We always see that in education. When there's a real divide between the two, kid doesn't do too well. When there's a connection, um, and I think this would fix that as well, because there'd be one person that the, that the parents get to know until they age with all the way through secondary school. My experience with secondary school is pretty universal with other parents that I hear, is we're involved in year nine, because those teachers are normally a bit nicer, often more often a primary school teacher. Um, and do a bit more relationship focus, but then you lose them after that year and you're in a sea of um, other relationships and you're disengaged for the rest of the kids' high school. I think, I'm a teacher and I work in education and I'm in, you know, involved in that. Yeah. Um, and I really had bugger all to do with my kids' secondary school education because unless you actively throw yourself into the board of trustees, um, 
Just and here's, I have to, we have to have a little shout out to say, I have my son's physics teacher, who is his right. teacher in year nine, was somebody whom I connected with because my son cared about him and spoke about him so much. Like, right. In year 10, the thing my son was looking forward to in year 12 was that he'd have this teacher again. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? And when I spoke to him about, I said, so, you know, talking to him about his teaching, and he said, I don't know, I just try and really love them all. Right, yeah, it's not hard, is it? That reminds me of a documentary I saw about teachers in Finland. I'm trying to look at why Finland gets such better results than everybody else. And they showed all these other countries, and they asked all the, the same question to all the teachers in the different countries. What is the single most important thing you've got to get out of your education? And you've got this vast array of answers from all these other countries, and England and New Zealand tend to be very focused on getting ready for work. And then, like, every single teacher in Finland said, for the child to be happy. <laughs> and it's like, it's not actually rocket science sometimes. It's just where is your focus? Speaking of overseas, I know that you have been doing work in China, advising them there on stuff relating to child development. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about what you've been doing. Um, it's, I think it's really incredibly innovative of China. I mean, they're real um, shakers and movers. They, um, they, what I'm doing is going over there to teach early childhood teachers and to the new entrance primary school teachers the value of play-based learning. Now, I don't, in China, I don't have to spearhead that because the government's already spearheaded it. They're, they're aware of all the international research, the same as we are, you know. Everyone's got Google. They can even get it in China. <laughs> so yeah. they're aware of the international research. They know the same stuff that we do around how um, the, the advantages of play-based learning and the advantages that leads to resilient teenagers. So the more play-based creativity you have under seven, the less anxiety, depression, you know, negative outcomes as teenagers. Um, they're aware of all of that. But with a the story they put it across to me, which is a simplified one, because I haven't spoken to the Chinese government, obviously. I'm through an early childhood agency within China that's mandated by the government. But the short version is they've um, worked out that in the last three generations, China has become famous for copying other people's technology. Not so much famous for creativity and innovation. That's really dropped in the last three generations. Now, there's clearly no shortage of it in the gene pool, because, you know, China for 6,000 years has this history of, you know... Led the way in creativity. You, know, you trace things back to their origin, and it seems like most things are invented in China. So no shortage of it, and then it just leads to three generations. And why was that? Um, because that's when they stopped the kids from playing and sat them down and started getting them ready for school and created this culture of getting two- and three-year-olds doing literacy and numeracy. So bringing your frontal cortex online early. Um, and so now they've understood that that's, that's um, why they compare themselves to America. So they basically see that the, um, the Chinese kids are doing way better at the exams all the way through our way primary school's exams, certainly at secondary school's exams, and then they die when they get to university. Because once you need to do more than just get ready for exams and you need to apply it to your life, well, then the people who have played are able to do that. The people that have only got ready for tests can only do tests. You know, there is no creativity, no innovation, no innovation to outside the box, which really means you've got no leadership. Um, so... There's a, there's a fear of any sort of risk-taking. It's hard to be a leader if you've got a fear of any sort of risk-taking. Um, so, yeah, they realise that, and that their, their own experts have told them it's because of what you're doing from the ages of 10 to 7, where you're integrating early cognitive attainment rather than building resilience and fix the social-emotional well-being and you know, focusing on social-emotional well-being, which builds creativity. Creativity um, from 10 to 7 is what leads to thinking. So they changed the law in China. It's supposed to be play-based under seven. They can do that relatively easily. They've set up model centres in every city um, to show people what it looks what, like. What they should look like. 
what, what it should look like. So lots of teachers come through and tour that, and I've been through and toured them. Um, but then they also know it could take multiple generations to actually change the culture. So they've got me to go along. They went out and looked around internationally and decided that I was the best person and that they were saying it the clearest because they everyone's got the research. They were, who's saying it the clearest for Chinese teachers to to understand? They decided that was me. And so they've got me for five years ago because they want me to do every early childhood teaching in China. So that means you're every city. You won't get the rural areas, obviously, but every city in China. And so that takes five years. We do like two cities a time and we go out four times a year. Wow. And in terms of, in terms of um, cultural responsiveness for working in China, what are some of the changes that you might have to think about? Or does it change? Yeah, for me, working in China, being culturally responsive, yeah. um, I think it's recognising that everyone's on a spectrum. And if you tell those people to completely let go of control and give the kids free play, um, they, would, they could, would be ready for that. They would think free play is free range. I mean, a lot of New Zealand parents think. They think free play is, um, you know, you might as well leave the kids at home, leave them in the backyard, do as you want, um, whereas that's free range. I mean, actually, if they're just being left by themselves, that's neglect. <laughs> but, you know, free play is requires you know, it's not art of teaching. I was a primary school teacher first and then an early childhood teacher, so I personally found play-based teaching um, more cognitively difficult for me to master. I had to be more attuned, more observant, and more ready to you know, react to the moment. As a primary school teacher, I can just plan my lesson beforehand and go, this is the beginning, this is the middle, these are the conclusions, mm-hmm. this is what the children would have produced. But in play-based, as soon as I take charge, I'm outside the body of research that gets the benefits. So I have to learn to engage with the children in a way that extends them cognitively and enhances their play without ever taking over, not even suggestively making a little suggestion to take over. That's still at our lead. It's got to be 100% child-led, and yet I've got to make that play more complex. So that's quite um, difficult. So you presumably, presumably then for China, then we're talking about teachers who, on one hand, um, there's a culture change for the teaching people to, to let go of control. But then yeah. on the other side, there's also a huge professional, um, professional development piece of learning how to do play-based. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not just let go, it's and here are all the new tools and skills you need. Yes, that's so much the case because people let go and then don't know what to do instead. I'll go and have a cup of tea. Yeah, 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 that's right. Not um, quite, no. It is half the trouble. And I see lots of schools that are understanding this literature and they're going, oh, we better be play-based then. And but there's a real lack of understanding about what that play-based is. We've had a couple of schools say, oh, well, you, can you come along and do us a two-hour talk and tell us what play-based is? And of course... You know, two hours, you can introduce the field of literature. I can give an example. Um, but you can't really sort of summarise three years of teacher's into. It's kind of really just, I'll give you a taster. And if you actually want to do this, you need to engage and learn. Yeah, and you yeah. need to develop. And development yeah. is an ongoing process. It's going to be having lots. And there's so much about trusting children, too. If you've started out like I did as a primary teacher, you're inherently taught um, that you need to take responsibility for the child's learning and make sure that they get to hear, make sure they get to hear, make sure they get to hear. Whereas play-based is like the exact opposite. It's trust. It's trusting that that child's brain is intimately tuned to what they need to do. So when that kid wants to kick a soccer ball against the wall, and he's been doing that for about one to the fifth week from kicking a soccer ball against the wall every time he has free time, and is that really engaged? That is. It's about working with that. 
and I, you know, I'm getting alongside that. Can we, you know, but you still need to start with that. You can't say, no, that's only a waste of time. It's time to do something else. Yeah. 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 It's trust. And then working with whatever the kid contributes. I mean, usually they contribute way more than that. But even if all they're contributing is kicking a soccer ball against a wall repeatedly, start with that. Because that's yeah. where the, that's the communication from the child telling you that's you know, where they're at. And that's what they need right now. It's trust. Nice. I like that. And trust, trust the child's brain and body and their development and, yeah, yeah. and be with them. And mm. trust your own ability to know how to meet that. Because it isn't just trusting them or else it could just be neglect again. It's trusting and then meeting that with the school base. Mm-hmm. Trust in the school base. Trust in the unfolding. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Trust and respond. Mm. Yeah. And so, Nathan, in terms of um, w- how things are developing in the fields of neuroscience and child development, what do you think are the big lessons from those fields for educators, for schools? Um, yeah, I suppose the, well, the big lesson is what I said, relationships. And yeah. I suppose for schools, it's about realising that we are not getting more robotic as human beings and we're not just a frontal cortex, but that the human brain's made up of four different brains. You've got a survival brain, and on top of that is a movement brain, and on top of that is an emotional brain, and then on top of that is the thinking and learning brain. I think for too long, school, we've thought, oh, well, the dog's got the bottom three. Let's just focus on the one the dog hasn't got. And we've been a bit detached and look at what the frontal cortex and units and skills and I think neuroscience has taught us that it's a complex system and all those brains work together. And the really competent teacher, whether they're doing it consciously or not, is actually engaging all four of those brains. Mm-hmm. I think that's what Miss Honey's doing. You know, when, I, when you look back over your school and you go, if I asked you to choose the teacher that was really the most significant, and, you know, even if they weren't conscious of those four brains, we could look at their practice and go, yeah, they did the survival brain and had his needs met and was calm. Movement brain wasn't restricted in any way, so it was unencumbered. Okay, so, so that leaves the energy to move up to brain number three. We get engaged in our learning, and then we've sort of met the needs of all brains one, two, and three. You know, Miss Honey does that sort of just in her nature. But that's why I think the kids get a whole higher grade in Miss Honey's class. Your IQ goes way up in Miss Honey's because class. somebody's making us. She's making us feel safe, yep. um, attending to our needs, validating our emotions. Yep. And engaging us. Yeah, and that from the, since the beginning of evolutionary time, that's when you learn. You don't learn when someone's when a saber-toothed tiger's chasing you, and you're a bit petrified or you're self-doubting, and that's a whole different part of the brain that's engaged. So if you feel scared and full of self-doubt um, in your math class, of course you're not going to be able to do math. So it would be like asking the dog to do maths because you're just in the wrong brain. Um, but yeah, if you feel like your math teacher is you've got put safe with them, they respect mm-hmm. you, and They've made it interesting and they've connected it to your world and then you're engaged with that, mm. then yeah, then I imagine you'll be an amazing mathematician. And you, you could have started out with exactly the same genetic potential for maths. And presumably then also this kind of applies at the collective scale as well as the individual scale, that in terms of our whole school environment, we need to feel safe and validated as we're walking around the corridors, on the playing fields, engaging yeah. with any of the staff. Well, I think you need to feel safe as well. I might, might be a bridge too far to think that they're going to be these little havens. I mean, teenagers are horrible when they want to be. Other children bully. And they, their frontal cortex is shut down and they lack empathy and they can be cruel. I don't think that we need to stop them being teenagers. They've done that since the beginning of time. Um, you just put adults around them and systems around there to mitigate 
and you make sure that as well as putting up with the adolescent bullying and stuff that children put up with, they are also receiving high quality reciprocal relationships where they are trusted. And you know, so it's about giving both. I think it might be idealistic to think that you're always going to be safe, but you need to know how to get to a safe place. Nice, thank you. And Nathan, if you could only do one thing for the rest of your life to support well-being in the world at large, what would it be? Um, I would wave a magic wand and get everyone to love themselves, to love themselves in the same way that they love their best friend. Because then, if you treated yourself like the same way that you treat your best friend, then um, I have to fuck with that. The of stuff would disappear. But really, is self-love. Yeah. Self-love is about that voice in your head. I think so much of the theorists that I get exposed to you know, across my whole career, about the unifying message underneath, it's about taking control of that voice inside your head. That voice inside your head is not supposed to be abusive to you. And so now that you're an adult, don't let that be abusive. Just, just simply don't allow it. Just busy yourself with something else. Um, quickly ring someone. Starve that voice to death if it is very horrible to you because it's not, in the, it's not supposed to be a critical parent. It's supposed to be your best friend. A loving friend. Yeah, if you starve that uncritical parent, then you will find there is a friend that will come forward. And you're in a voice that's starting to say to you, you can't say to this. You've met other challenges before and you've risen to those. And if you really, the same stuff you say to your best friend, why would you ever say to your best friend, you can't wear that, you're too fat. (laughs) (laughs) You can't do that. Only really clever people do that. And you're like, you know, but stupid. But people talk to themselves like that and they're here all the time. But yeah, I think that's the trick. That would be my one thing. Oh, nice. And last question, Nathan. What's your own go-to strategy for boosting your own well-being whenever you feel, like, really frustrated or down? What works for you? Um, I have this, you know, I put my power song on. What's your power song? Oh, it's embarrassing. I'll tell you mine if you tell yours. Well, I just want to put a preclaimer that I didn't, like, choose my song. It chose me. It's just a song that I end up that, and it's kind of over the top and silly, and that's what makes me just realise life's silly and just buck up your confidence. That's um, I'm too sexy for my shirt. Oh, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, it's hard to keep serious and keep life really serious. Yeah, because you immediately start strutting. Yeah, yeah, I'm too sexy for my shirt, yeah. Oh, excellent. Mine is Ronan Keating and it, loving each day. It was my husband's fault, actually. He made oh, me play it one day when I was going to do something really scary. And now um, I put it on and you have to do this massive woo, shriek at the start. Okay, right. Cool, cool, cool. The hell? Sometimes, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, the, it's always the, the music, not the words. I mean, yeah. Other than I'm too sexy for my shirt, I don't even know what the other words are. It's just it's loud music. That particular riffs. That yeah. particular style of music that lifts my emotions. I think, find what that is. We underuse music, don't we? Because music has the power to change your emotions. But oh, gorgeous. Nathan, thank you so much for talking us to, to us today. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and I know um, our listeners will really enjoy hearing you too. Right. Thank you, Denise. Thanks for the opportunity. You've been listening to Bringing Wellbeing to Life on ORFM Dunedin. If you'd like to learn more, our book, The Educator's Guide to Whole School Wellbeing, is available from nziwr.co.nz from early 2020. You can also listen to a podcast of this show on oar.org.nz, on nziwr.co.nz, and you can also subscribe to Apple Podcasts. I'm Dr. Denise Quinlan. Thank you for listening.
This program has been brought to you by the New Zealand Institute of Wellbeing and Resilience. For more information on how schools, communities and workplaces can grow their wellbeing and resilience, go to nziwr.co.nz.